Thank you. Is this on? Well, now I can't see you, but thank you for being here. Um, I come to you not from the world of fiction exclusively and not from the world of nonfiction exclusively. I come to you from the world of narrative. Um, I know tomorrow some of us are going to be talking about craft, but the thing that um, just strikes me about the work that I do and probably the work that some of you do is that um, narrative is this kind of overarching term. Um, and I think what it suggests to me is that stories tell you the way they want to be told. And some stories are better told um, in fiction and some stories are better told um, with a, a deep allegiance to fact. Um, the last book I wrote was a book of fiction. Um, and very shortly after it came out, um, I started writing for The New Yorker very regularly. And this job that I took um, writing for them has kind of overtaken my life in a way because, um, because it feels very urgent at the moment to pay attention to um, really have an allegiance to facts um, uh, because of the political moment that we're, we're living through. Hopefully, we'll end at some point. But what the problem is, is that um, the news cycle, the, the things that are happening in the world are happening so fast um, and are so overwhelming um, that, at least for me, one of the things I really resent about this current moment that we're living in is that I don't feel the kind of expansive moment of creativity that you need to have to have, have an imagination, um, to just be free of the world, um, to do that thing that you were sort of reading about, is just to be let alone. I feel like the world, there's a, a poem by um, uh, Delmore Schwartz, and, and it talks about how the, the world that is, is sort of on us. It talks about the, the heavy bear that follows us around. Um, and, and I feel like that's what the world is right now. And so um, when Sarah asked me if I was working on a project, I sort of feel like, you know, the project I'm working on is the project of trying to get people to pay attention to the things right now that are very, very important um, that have, um, uh, have going, are going to have um, a very deep and lasting effect uh, on our planet and on our lives. And, um, and so I feel, um, I feel that you're all very lucky to be here, um, to have this space, to have been given this opportunity to just think and create and read and um, be with each other. Um, and um, anyhow, I'm glad to be here for just a few days. Uh, just, it's, I, I didn't even bring my phone over here. It's like, wow, that's like <laughs> shocking. Um, anyhow, so I thought what I'd do, because um, I am this kind of, um, I, I, when I was in Kentucky, I met this guy who was the, um, he was the like, chief executive of this county, but he was also the pastor of um, this church, of a Baptist church. So he had two jobs, and he called himself bivocational, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, so I feel kind of bivocational because I, I kind of work my way between fiction and nonfiction. So I brought two books with me, the last two books that I wrote 
Um, they're very, very different. Um, and uh, I thought I would read a little bit from, from each of those. Um, but let me just tell you a little bit about them and then I'll go forth and do that. And then afterwards, I hope that you'll have some questions to ask me. And if not, I'll just call on you and you'll have to. Because as a college teacher, that is what I do. Um, so you're, you, know, you better come up with questions is all I'm saying. Um, so um, the first book is uh, this book. It's called A Dog Walks Into a Nursing Home. Um, and um, it started out that uh, many years ago, um, my dog was bored, as you'll find out when I read this. Um, and um, when I, we decided, I decided that we'd become a therapy dog team, which was kind of hysterical, because um, it's really hard to pass the test. And um, uh, we cheated. Um, which I admit on the very first page of this book, um, which by the way got me into huge trouble. Um, it's a book, in w it's actually a book of moral philosophy um, that's kind of dressed up as a book about um, my dog. Um, and uh, we got, I was going to go on the Today Show um, with the dog and I uh, to, to uh, talk about the book. And uh, like two days before the crew was going to come to um, to uh, film us, I got, I got a panicked call from the producer saying, um, I, we're not sure we can come because um, it says here on the first page that you cheated. And uh, we, you know, our lawyers are saying we can't have cheaters on our <laughs> show. And I'm like thinking really hard and I was like, you know, I'm sort of making all the arguments like, no, we didn't really cheat. It was, you know. And then finally I said, have you ever had Bill Clinton on your show? And they're like, yeah. And I said, case closed. And they came and we were on the Today Show. So thank you, Bill. Um, so anyhow, this is a book about the work that my dog and I did um, in a nursing home, uh, which is not one of those kind of fancy places where people you know, have to give up every dollar that they've ever earned to spend the rest of their lives there. It's a, it's a county facility um, where most of the people are on Medicare, Medicaid. Um, and we did that. We worked there every Tuesday for seven years um, until the dog uh, got sick and, and uh, eventually died. Um, but I didn't go there thinking I was going to write a book, but eventually I did write a book um, about that. And so that's this book. Um, which, as I say, is sort of a little bit about, um, it's really a book about moral philosophy in a weird way, um, in that um, I, when I was there and I was sort of thinking about what, if I did write a book, what would it look like, I realized that all the things, all the, like, the seven virtues that are um, sort of codified in various religions were the things that were sort of coming back at me. So anyhow, that's that book. And then there's this book, which is the more recent book, which is the novel um, that came out not that long ago. And that book has a really weird and funny genesis. Um, when I lived in the Adirondacks, which I did before I moved to Vermont, um, I lived in a town that did not have a library. And um, I was asked by the town board to join with two other people in this town, and they gave us $15,000, and they said, make a library. Which, if you think about $15,000 and how much books cost, you will realize that it's not going to go very far. 
um, but miraculously, and um, I, we did do that. Uh, we started a library. Um, it's an amazing story. It should be a movie. Um, and it's a kind of a field of dreams kind of story about our library. But in any case, I, I started this library, and I recognized very quickly once we started it um, that it was going to change everything in this town, and it did. Um, and so that was part of why I wrote a book about that's set in a library. And the other, th the other thing, and the reason why I said it was a little weird, was that I had been doing, I did a story for The New Yorker um, about uh, people who had come back from the wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq um, who had PTSD. Um, and in the course of, of doing that research for that book, for that piece rather, um, I came across this very weird statistic, and the weird statistic was that um, something like uh, some huge percentage of people who have had uh, a spinal cord injury, um, two years after they've lost the ability to walk, say that their life is better than it was when they had full capacity. Um, and I found that really interesting, and then it turned out that if you look at a lot of other um, traumas that people go through, um, they say the same thing, that after they've gone through this horrible situation, they have a better appreciation for the things that they have, and they're happier. Um, and I thought that was interesting, and, and I thought about writing a piece about that, and then I realized that that's not, I, I, I could already imagine what that piece looked like, and so I just thought it would be really interesting to watch someone go through that process. So start with this trauma and then have to very much inch by inch claw her way out of there to some other place. And so I decided to put those two things together kind of crazily and wrote this book. Um, so I thought I would start um, maybe by reading a little bit from the dog book, as I call it, um, and give you a sense of that. And um, one of the things that's really important to me uh, when I'm writing um, is to be able to, uh, if not be funny, at least sort of make people feel comfortable, in a sense, um, with uh, my foibles, anyhow. Um, which is why, in the beginning of the book, I did admit that we cheated. Um, and my dog's name is Pransky sometimes called Pransky in the, in the book, some kind of, sometimes called Pranny. Six weeks into our training, when failure seemed assured, I made a call to the local nursing home. It was a feint, a fake to the right. I told the volunteer coordinator that I'd recently published a book about dementia and had spent some time with dementia patients at hospitals on both coasts, this was true, and wanted to bring my incredibly well-behaved dog into her dementia unit to work with her patients. I hoped she'd jump at the opportunity to have us there, knocking aside the ever-narrowing loop of therapy dog certification, which would then roll away out of sight. The, by the way, I, we were failing at therapy dog certification, so I just wanted to figure out a way in that, where we could bypass that. I was also counting on the fact that no one spends time in a nursing home unless they must, so of course she'd welcome us. The volunteer coordinator passed me along to the activities director, a woman I'll call Jeannie. I told her about Pransky, dropping adjectives like cute and calm and friendly and cute 
and sweet and gentle and cute. She does sound cute, Janie said. I'm sure she'd be great. Hearing no hesitation in her voice, I was already looking forward to leash-free afternoon jaunts through the woods with my dog again. The reason why I said that is because I had to teach her how to walk on a leash, which she had never done before and which she hated. As soon as, your document, as soon as you have your documentation, we'd be happy to have you. We like cute dogs, she said. Thwarted, I tried my last gambit. We want to work in the memory care wing, I said and explained that I had some experience and that I'd written a book about memory, hoping that my implied expertise would overcome her allegiance to protocol and that this would be the key that turned the lock that let us in. To be honest, there was another reason why I wanted to be assigned to the dementia unit. It scared me less. The paradox of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias is that as devastating as they are, their victims typically don't look sick until the end. Um, they were confused, yes, and they were desperate, but even desperately ill, but even so, appearances were deceiving, and I was happy to be deceived. At the same time, I was counting on other people being unnerved by people with serious memory loss, so that wanting to spend time with these people would give us extra credit. Wow, Janie said cheerfully, that's amazing. I was back to feeling encouraged. You're like the fifth person this month who wants to volunteer in the special care unit. I was back to feeling discouraged. But no one else has a dog. I was feeling encouraged again. <laughs> Thing is, Janie said, the special care unit already has a therapy animal, a cat who lives there. Pransky loves cats, I said, which may or may not have been a lie. I had no idea. She had never met a cat. She definitely likes small rodents, which she chased through our meadow and sometimes even catch. Oh, and there's a therapy dog that visits sometimes too, Janie added. But we'd love to have you two work with our general patient population. They haven't had a therapy dog in a long time. That's where we could really use help. As soon as you and Pransky get your certification, you can start. And so to recap, not only had I agreed to work with the old folks at the county home, there would be no shortcuts to get there. It was back to slow walking for Pranny and me. So we couldn't, uh, I couldn't basically do what, uh, um, all those parents in California were doing and buying their way into USC and stuff. I could not buy my way into this nursing home. Um, and we had to go through the, um, the testing process. And part of the test was that the dog had to be able to walk by my side on the leash. And this is a dog that never walked on a leash. And when I put a leash on, she would always pull. And we spent probably three months. Tr I tried and tried and tried to get her to not pull. And so... Um, on the day of the test, which has 15 parts to it, and I knew she could probably pass all of the other ones, but on the day of the test, I got out my bike and um, we went for about a four mile jaunt. Um, then my daughter took her for a run. Then we did some more bike, biking. And um, by the time we got to the test, she was so tired. And, and the test was like an hour and a half away. And, and she was, the dog was in the back seat with my daughter and falling asleep. And my daughter's job was basically to keep her awake. Like, stay awake so that you can go to this thing and be so tired that she just, like, I could barely get her to walk on the leash. She was so tired. And then when we finished, and we did very well on our test, very, very well, which as a Rhodes Scholar, you can imagine, you know, it was very important to me. Um, 
the woman, the woman uh, who was testing us said, you know, I looked at this dog and I knew she would be great. <laughs> it's like, and she was, I have to say. She was fantastic. She was really, really good at the, um, at the nursing home. She was a fantastic uh, therapy dog. Um, anyhow, I thought I'd read you one other little part from, from there. Um, one of the things in the nursing home that was really interesting was just um, how much the dog was able to draw people out in a way that I was not. Um, and I think part of it is just a very tactile thing. The dog shows up, people who are not verbal, um, touch the dog, and it is a tr trigger to some deeper place, some earlier place. And, and this happened over and over and over again. People who, we did actually end up working a lot in the dementia unit, and people who were mute, essentially, um, would engage with the dog and sort of come out of wherever they were and, and then engage with me. But it was really started by the dog, not by me. Um, OK, this is a, a, a patient there, there who's, and I changed all the names, so we called her Lizzie. Lizzie was sitting in the day room, planted in a Barca lounger, her eyes trained on the TV screen, her head listening to one side. She was young, maybe 35, maybe 45, with long brown hair, soft eyes, and fingers that tapered like a pianist's. Her nails were painted baby pink, baby doll pink, which seemed appropriate. There was something delicate and fragile about her. Hi, Lizzie, I said. Do you want to say hi to the dog? Her eyes lit up, but she said nothing. I pushed Pransky forward since she didn't seem inclined to move there on her own. The big chair with its leg rest extended upward was intimidating. Would you like to pet her, I asked, though I had no idea whether Lizzie understood me or not. I was thinking stroke and cerebral palsy and car accident. I was thinking of every bad thing that could happen to land her at county, knowing that one in seven nursing home residents were now under 65 and the number was growing fast. I continued to edge Pransky as close to Lizzie as she could get, and while I felt her body resisting, she let me do it anyway. Petting the back of her head, I steered and pushed till it was resting on Lizzie's thigh. Lizzie extended her fingers, this seemed hard for her, and touched the dog, and smiled. Puppy, she said. Puppy, I said. And in the context of that room, that one word felt like a conversation. Anyhow, I'm going to stop reading that one there. Um, anyhow, we were there for seven years, and um, we made a lot of friends. And uh, what's weird about nursing homes, at least the one that we were in, was people do die. Like, I think I went there thinking everyone was about to drop dead, and it was going to be horrible. Um, but in fact, people were there for years, as we were. Um, I mean, there are still people there who were there when we were there, um, and who I go see now. But um, but it really, it's a, it's a much slower unwinding than you might imagine. Um, and we were able, I think, to make some pretty, pretty deep connections with people. But it wasn't, I felt like it wasn't really me. I really did feel like it was the dog that was doing all of that work. Um, and it was really interesting because when we left there every Tuesday, we would go home and she would just lie down and she would sleep for the rest of the day. And um, I just had these like amazing experiences with her, with people who were dying, um, 
she was uh, just so, she had such empathy. Um, and she, she would know often what to do when I, I didn't. And I would just find myself, we were a team. Um, we were constantly looking at each other to understand what needed to be done. Um, and sometimes I felt like I was looking at her more than she was looking at me to, to get the answer for what we should be doing. Um, so anyhow, it was, a, it was a kind of a remarkable experience. Um, and now I have another dog. <laughs> and, um, everyone asks me if I'm going to train her to be a therapy dog, and I would very much like to, but um, she has some issues. So uh, I'm just waiting for those issues to go away, and, um, and then she will be a therapy dog. She's been to the nursing home many times. We were grandfathered in. Um, but, uh, but we can't go there officially. She can't get an ID card um, until we pass our test. So anyhow, um, moving over to the other book. Um, in this book, there are three main characters. Um, and they all have a story that um, is very distinct. Um, and they all meet at the library. So as you know, because probably all of you spend time in libraries, Libraries are really cool spaces because they are kind of non-judgmental spaces. They're spaces where anyone can go. They are kind of the def definition of public. And, um, and um, as a consequence, at least in the library that I'm writing about, um, people's lives collide. Um, and in this case, for the better. Um, and so the three main characters are uh, the librarian, the woman who has suffered this sort of main trauma, and her name is Kit. Um, and then there's this young girl whose name is Sunny, um, who is 15, um, almost 16. And, um, and then there's this guy named Rusty, who is a kind of refugee from uh, the fallout from the financial crisis. And they all kind of converge in this little town um, where the, the only sort of really substantial um, existing public institution is the library. And the library is sort of the glue of this town as everything falls away. It's a kind of a New England mill town. Um, for those of you kind of imagine, you know, like uh, parts of New Hampshire that you go, that you see all these old mill buildings and they're all abandoned. Um, it's kind of like that. Um, so I thought I'd read you just two little sections of that. Um, the, the first section I'm going to read you is, is from Sunny, um, who I have to say was my favorite character and was so fun to write, um, uh, as you will see why, I think. Um, so Sunny is in the first person. Kit is in the third person. Rusty's in the third person. Um, and I did Sunny in the first person on purpose, obviously, since I wrote it. Um, but I just wanted, um, I wanted her to have her own voice. Um, and there are reasons for that that become clear in the, in the book later on. So in our county, they have this thing called Kids Court, which is how I ended up at the library for the summer vacation, even though I don't have summer vacation since I'm no schooled. No schooling is what it sounds like. You don't go to regular school or follow a curriculum. The idea is that the whole world is one big school, and you can learn biology from looking at frogs and worms. You can learn fractions from making pies, 
and you can learn history from talking to old people. But you don't have to. You study only what interests you. No schooling is about awakening your passions and following them down whatever path they lead, my mother likes to say. It's also basically my parents' philosophy of life. The two of them met at a rainbow gathering, and when it was over, they hitchhiked for a couple of years, crisscrossing North and South America, stopping to barter or do odd jobs when they needed food or cash. Kids' court is a real court with a real judge and a sheriff who yells, all rise, when the judge walks into the room, though from what I could see, this was less about getting people to stand up and more about the fact that kids' court starts at 6.45 in the morning so parents could get the work afterward and everyone is really sleepy. It's the place where good kids or kids who haven't yet gone bad are sent when they do something wrong or dumb or both like try to slip a book down their jeans at Barnes & Noble when they're sure no one is looking. The book cost $22.95, which was $12.63 more than I had on me at the time. Well, Solstice, the judge said, looking down at the papers on his desk before looking at me, he was a black man with a round face and round wire-rimmed glasses whose head was completely bald and shiny on top and whose chin was decorated with a woolly gray beard that sprung off his face like coils of steel wool. Sonny, I said, my right leg shaking nervously. When I'm nervous, I have a tendency to butt in. Excuse me? The judge frowned, making it clear that he was not pleased to have heard from me so soon. Solstice is the name on my birth certificate, I continued, speaking quickly. It's my official name, but everyone calls me Sonny. I smiled at the judge. He did not smile back. Solstice, the judge began again. Can you tell me why you stole? He looked down at his papers, squinted, then cocked his head the way dogs do sometimes when they're confused. The Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary? Okay, easy question. Because I didn't have enough money to buy it, I said. People laughed, but I wasn't trying to be funny. I would have bought it if I could. Order, he growled, and threatened to bang his gavel. I understand that's why you stole, but why did you steal a dictionary of all things? I've had a lot of thieves in my courtroom, but this, this is a first. The thing is, I could afford the paperback, but paperbacks don't last. Their pages fall out, and what good is a dictionary that's missing a page now and then? You go to look up a word, and it isn't there, and you can't prove that it ever was. The hardback was solid and sturdy, and it was beautiful with gilt edging, which make the book look, made the book look 24 karatish. Did I say that my mother makes jewelry that she sells at a kiosk in the mall, the same mall where I sucked in my stomach and tried to cram a 532-page book between my belly and the waistband of my jeans? I'm waiting, the judge said, startling me. Okay, I said, inhaling deeply. I was tired of always having to ask someone when I didn't know the meaning of a word, like sesquipedalian, which means, the judge said, that's the thing, I said, I don't know. <laughs> so that's Sunny. Um, and she is just, she's, she's kind of feral. Um, and, um, but she becomes the kind of glue that brings the other two people in this book, Kit and, and Rusty, together, not necessarily romantically, but just sort of Kit, who is just trying very, very hard to hide in the library, um, and, and Rusty, who is just so confused about everything because the thing that he thought he was supposed to be doing, which was making a lot of money, um, that be, being the ra raison d'etre of his life, um, had just sort of gotten 
tossed aside and suddenly he's like, well, what am I supposed to do now if I'm not supposed to be making lots of money? Um, so Sonny becomes the kind of glue um, for these people's stories to, um, to intersect. Um, and I would say that Kit um, resists it, resists both of them as, as long as she can. Um, so I um, wanted to read a section from Kit, if I can find it. Um, but maybe not. Um, the other thing I should say, one of the things, um, someone was saying that Sarah read poems at the beginning of all the presentations. And one of the things I had a really good time doing here was um, finding really um, great poems to put. Um, and instead of as epigra epigraphs for like the beginning of the book, they're really epigraphs for the beginning of every section. Um, and so I got to spend a lot of time reading poetry and figuring out um, what I wanted to do with those, those words. Um, and the reason why that became important was because of Kit and her affection for the Norton anthology of poetry, um, which you'll find out about right now. When she first started at the library, Kit would arrive on Monday morning, freshly showered and ready to do something, anything, only to be greeted by her own footsteps echoing off the worn linoleum floor. Bored and worried that she'd be out of a job as soon as someone realized Riverton need, did not need a reference librarian after all, Kit busied herself by roaming the stacks looking for books that were out of order. The bookcases were tall and made from the trees that used to fill the forests outside of town, forests that were now given over to the tract homes just outside of town. Maple and oak, plain by hand and bleached by time in the sun, they stood in long rows, one after another, like sentinels. Kit would run her fingers over the wood, tracing the path of all the fingers that had come before hers, more than a hundred years of fingers, whose cumulative touch had worn the varnish bare in spots. She thought of the people whose fingers those were, mill workers and mill owners, shopkeepers, teachers, students, immigrants, not bothering to wonder where she fit in, knowing that she didn't. Fiction, nonfiction, biography, memoir, science, psychology, history, everything had its place. That was the beauty of libraries. No surprises except when someone screwed up or was lazy or was a thief. On those first Monday mornings when Kit would patrol the stacks on the lookout for disorder and not find the third volume of a six volume set or notice that there was a second copy of a book that didn't have a first one, she'd fill out a missing book form and put it in an expanding accordion, fi accordion file until Barbara Goodspeed, the librarian, library director, took her aside one day and told her to stop. Our funding depends on the size of our collections, she said, meaning that none of those books was going to be replaced. There was no money for that, and there would be even less if this fiction wasn't maintained. Kit retreated to her desk in the reading room, content to peruse the Sunday papers from cities she'd never visited, and if it was an especially slow morning, comb through a copy of the Norton Anthology of Poetry she'd found on the giveaway table. It was the same edition she'd had in college, only this one spine was not cracked in so many places the binding was, uh, that the binding was flaking off. She'd open the book randomly, looking for something she couldn't quite describe, some combination of wisdom, solace, companionship, and voice, as if it were a magic eight ball or a prayer. So that's Kit. Um, and I thought I would just read maybe one little more section, if that's okay. Is that okay? Yeah? 
that's okay. All right, I thought I'd go back and just read you the very beginning of the dog book. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about writing, um, well, probably any writing, but especially um, uh, nonfiction books, is that um, then they ask you, you know, to write an introduction. But if you wrote the introduction first, it really wouldn't work. So all, pretty much every introduction of any book you ever read is always written afterwards. So it's almost like an afterword, but it's in the front of the book. Um, because you don't really know what the book is until it's done. So you can't really do that. Um, and um, so I thought I would figure out a way to read just the very, very beginning. Um, let's see. Um, I'll just start here. When I first considered training Pransky to be a therapy dog, she was in her late adolescence. Dog years being what they are, she is now about the same age as most of the people in the nursing home. Even so, the words work and walk still get her to her feet in a unit of time that is less than a second. Is she better at her job, more empathetic now that she too is of a certain age? I doubt it. I doubt it because I don't think she could be more empathetic. As foreign, foreign as the nursing home environment was to both of us when we first started visiting County, it was a little less so to me since my first job was at a medical school in a teaching hospital where I sometimes went on rounds. I was in my late 20s with a newly minted doctorate hired to teach ethics to second year students. This should tell you all you need to know about how seriously that place took the ethical part of medical education. At that age, I had about as much experience with the complicated ethical dilemmas of sick people and their families as the second years in my class had treating sick people and dealing with those ethical dilemmas, which is to say, basically none. Since, still, reality was not our mandate, we were supposed to consider what might happen if and then think through the best then. The one thing you need to know about modern philosophy is that the operative word in the previous sentence is best. The first thing we had to do in that class was figure out what it meant. Was it what the person in the bed said they wanted, what the doctor wanted, what the hospital's risk manager, manager wanted, what the church, whatever church it was, wanted, what the partner wanted, what the other doctor wanted, what the parents wanted, what the children wanted? Sorting out what was best was, to say the least, challenging. For guidance, we read works by Kant and Aristotle and Bentham that were harder to get through than the textbooks on human anatomy and organic chemistry, and for my students, who were itching to get into the clinic, largely beside the point. Well, I didn't think for a minute that an abstract principle like Kant's categorical imperative, for instance, was actually going to lead to the right decision on whether or not to give a new heart to a homeless man. It seemed like a reasonable idea in a place where right answers were often not as black and white as they might appear to inject some of these notions into the future doctors' heads. If ideas like these could become part of their mental landscape, then in the future, con confronted with that homeless man, they might see the terrain with greater definition. Historically, when people look for guidance on how to conduct their lives, they turn to philosophy or religion or both. That's less true now as former religions, religious affiliations drop away and academic philosophy becomes more and more arcane. It's not that people are less inclined to examine their lives or seek wisdom. It's just that they are more likely to look for it in other places, in support groups or radio call-in shows, or from life coaches, or on the internet, or in books, or in my case, inadvertently, with my dog in a nursing home. When Pransky and I started working at County, I expected to learn things. How could I not? Though, though what those things would be, I had no clue. 
I assumed I'd learned something about old people and about the therapeutic value of animals in a medical setting and about myself in that setting, which was alien and not a little scary. What I found myself learning about quickly sorted itself into a template that anyone with a Catholic edu education especially, which would not include me, would recognize as the seven virtues. Love, hope, faith, prudence, justice, fortitude, restraint. It should be said that the Catholics didn't have a corner on virtue, or on these seven in particular. They just happened to enumerate and, in a sense, popularize them. So when we think of virtue, we tend to think in sevens. And the virtues remain as guides, not only to good conduct, to, but to our better and possibly happier, more harmonious and humane selves. Happiness, as it happened, was the dominant emotion for both Pransky and me when we were at the nursing home, strange as that seems and strange as that was. I didn't go there to be happy any more than I did to learn about hope or fortitude or think about courage and faith, but that's what happened. More than luck was at work. My dog was at work, and she brought, it, brought to it a lightness and an easiness that seemed to expand outward and encompass, and encompass almost everyone she encountered. We often talk about getting out of our comfort zone, but rarely about entering someone else's. Pransky made that possible. With her by my side and sometimes in the lead, I was able to be a better, more responsive, less reticent version of myself. One day, a man I didn't know was sitting idly by himself in the nursing home hall. He was wearing a badly tied hospital johnny that exposed part of his back and nothing else. It was rare for people of county not to be dressed in street clothes, but it wasn't his attire that caught my attention. The man was jaundiced and almost as yellow as the liquid running through the tube that started under his hospital gown and ended in a bag on the side of his wheelchair that, and he had no legs. If I had been alone, I might have nodded in his direction and kept going, because that man represented most of the things that scared me about nursing homes, debilitating illness, a lack of privacy, bodily fluids. But I was not alone, and my partner veered in his direction, which meant that I had no choice to go, but to go over and talk to him. And what a nice guy. We talked about dogs, sports, and dogs some more. I was in his comfort zone, and Pransky's, and then ultimately mine. It was, in the scheme of things, a small thing, but small things add up. My mommy would like your doggy, a youngest woman with developmental disability said to me the first time we met her at County. My doggy would like your mommy, I said. Where does she live? In heaven, she said. Oh, I said. Pransky has a lot of friends in heaven. After what was then by a year in County, it was true. A certain amount of death is inevitable in a nursing home. This is where the virtues can be helpful. They point us at what is important and valuable in life. They can offer perspective and frames of reference. And if a dog is in the frame, all the better. Thank you.